Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome writer and director Tom Harp on the show to talk about making his move to L.A., getting reps, making connections, and then after many, many years, making his two feature films back-to-back during the pandemic. And we're going to talk mostly about the donor party, but uh, we also talk about his film Home Delivery as well. After that, we play another round of our newest segment, You're the Expert. But first, Liz... How are you doing? Sorry, there is a knocking at my door, and it's not an exterior door. It is an interior door. <laughs> a rapping on your cellar door? <laughs> yes. I'm just... Li- yes. I don't know. Sorry, I don't know how my son got upstairs. Now I'm texting I can't, Sean. I can't, I can't hear it, so... Oh, he's... Sean's in the bathroom. How am I? Well... I'm overwhelmed at the moment. Oh, could you hear that? Could you hear that a little, screaming? A little bit. Yeah, okay. Yes. We, I am sick. Colin is sick. We just moved. <laughs> There's just a lot happening. I guess the biggest update for me, and I uh, prepare to be shocked. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Prepare to be shocked is I decided to push the film back until after labor. I decided to make the movie oh, wow. after making the baby. I was talking to a friend of mine, Christine Weatherup, who was on the show, and she had a baby. She's amazing. A wife of Matt Enloe, but individual unto herself. Indeed. She released her first feature like two days before she gave birth to her first baby. And she said like after she gave birth, it was actually hard for her because I hope it's okay that I talk about this on the show, but you know, she's very strong. She's many things in her life, but I think she missed having a creative outlet, like finishing the film, all of the things that are emotional creative investments when you make a movie. Like when you have a baby, what did she necessarily have to look forward to professionally during that period of postpartum, right? So I started to think, wow, this actually is a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe making the movie, I shouldn't be stuffing the movie before the baby because that's rash and maybe not the right strategy. But actually I should look to it as an escape from the burden <laughs> of just having a baby. <laughs> like you just have a baby and you're like, oh God, I'm now a milk machine, a milk machine and I don't sleep and I'm exhausted and what am I doing with my life? But then you have this creative project to look forward to, right? That's always going to occupy your mind and it's going to occupy your mind in a different way based off of the timing of when you decide to make it. And I was so afraid of waiting to make this movie because I thought if I have this baby, I'll never make the movie. But now I'm starting to think that's that's viewing the movie making as a task rather than an experience. And so I'm trying to refocus and reformat my brain, like change the paradigm of my brain, and, and I'm going to make the movie after we have the baby. Wow. That was not what I was expecting you to say. Yeah. Um, I was expecting you to say you had another project that you just started. <laughs> well, that might be true, too. But <laughs> Oh, no. But yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. I feel like that's 
that feels like a very healthy decision. And yeah, I can see. I mean, I think it's totally different for women than it is for men after the kid is born. I think, you know, as the mom, you have so much more that you're dealing with that we're not dealing with. So I can imagine that being really like a nice thing to be like, yes, I have this thing that I'm excited about and looking forward to and get to focus on, you know. But I do know in general, just like when you're done with a project, it's like there's a sadness where it's like, I don't have this thing to obsess over anymore. Now I have to find another thing to obsess over and it can be hard to find that thing. But I mean that and also just giving birth because you're also like, you've been (laughs) carrying this baby in your belly for like nine, eight months. And then now that's gone. It's like, oh, like two things gone at once. Like that's got to be a lot to deal with. And the hormones, right? And all the, th- yeah. Yes. So let it change. And also I just, and then I made the decision in the midst of the move. The move was really, really difficult. I didn't realize it'd be so difficult to move. Like emotionally, I know logistically it was difficult, but I didn't know how difficult emotionally it would be to move from a place you lived in from, you know, like 14 years to a new neighborhood. And I was just thinking, why am I killing myself? Why am I killing myself, right? To add a pre-production for a movie on top of this move and top of this pregnancy there's no need. There's no need to be this mean. I, I started to feel like I was punishing myself for something. <laughs> and right. so I'm like, let's not punish. Let's just the, let's create like a much more enjoyable experience. But how are you? That's that's a good summary of what I'm going through right now. I'm doing good. No news on my movie. I was supposed to get an update, I think, this week, maybe yesterday. But yeah, nothing, nothing as of now. And then... Yeah, I haven't started writing yet, but I've been thinking a lot about writing, which I I know maybe sounds stupid, but it's like, you know, I feel like a lot of the writing for me is done in the brain. And so, like, if you have a plan in your mind for what you're going to do, it can it can help. So I've been spending a lot of time over the weekend and since last week thinking about my script that I'm going to get back into that I've already written half of. And just trying to think about like what I like uh, about movies and like what, like putting myself in the the seat of the viewer watching my own movie that I'm writing and like what I would want it to be. I also watched part of Reservoir Dogs the other day and just thinking about like how great that movie is and like how stripped down it is in some ways, especially like visually, like they're, they're very simple in their shot selection, but like in the best way possible, like they just like find a great angle and they just stick on it and there's like not a lot of cuts there's not a lot of other angles probably largely because they didn't have time but also because you know tarantino just has a great eye for that you know you know just watching tim roth like wreathe in the back of the car covered in blood as he's like dying (laughs) in the opening of the movie like right after that um amazing slightly sexist and slightly racist opening sequence which is you know (laughs) still a joy to watch but like yeah you're like oh god (laughs) some of the word choices Tarantino oh my god but yeah I mean that's just so incredible and his performance it's just it's something else I'm just thinking about like how can I be raw like that in this movie and like how can I strip things down and it's like okay so i have all these ideas for this character of like what they're gonna do in their journey through the movie and you know there's this make the main journey but like oh they should be having other things that they're doing that can like this thing that's happening to them that they have to deal with it while they're you know going through their day you know and i had all these ideas like oh maybe they're like you know a fighter and like they're doing like amateur fighting for fun and they have a fight that day that also and it's like wait but that's too much you don't need that whole storyline in your movie that's like too much story to like have a small thing so it's like i was trying to like think of like what 
what would it be, you know, because I already had these ideas written down and planned. And I'm like, well, that doesn't need to be in there. So it's like, cut that out, you know, and then think about what goes in in that place, if anything, or like what what will get us to the to the basically the climax, you know? So I spent a lot of time thinking about that and thinking You're about nude-ling. things to do You're it. You're creatively noodling right now. Yeah. But like, I think using references from like things that you really love or that you think are perfect in ways. My turn. It's your turn. Yeah. It's my turn. <laughs> I think that can help, you know, or at least I enjoy doing that process. Oh, I just get like so jealous. It's hard to like just enjoy it and be inspired <laughs> by it for me. I'm like, oh, I wish I did that. Oh, you know, well, it's. Especially if you like are looking at something great that everyone loves and then you've been watching a lot of other things that and you're like realizing like how rare is it that like people approach art and filmmaking in the way that this thing that you love does or did, you know, and you're like, wait, people aren't doing this. Why aren't people doing this more? <laughs> like, yeah. why, why is it cut, 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 shot, shot, shot? Like, you know, this angle, that angle, this angle, that angle. It's like, you don't need all that. Like, you know, Woody Allen, you know, another, but a good example (laughs) of someone who knows how to place a camera where you don't need to have tons of shots where like the story just unfolds beautifully in the, in the frame that he selected. Yeah. So I say like, that's like really where I want to get, we talked about, I can't remember his name, but the guy who was making those movies on super low budgets and like doing them super stripped down. Oh, I can't remember his name. He talked a lot about that too. About yeah, like, but just you, like, but you were like, we came to like a slight disagreement on that, right? It was like I was like, I will watch a can of paint for five minutes, and you were like, nope, I need something to happen. So it sounds like you're finding a happy medium of patience within, right. a, you know, a film. Yeah, but if someone's bleeding out in the back of a car in one shot, it's like that is plenty to be happening. <laughs> You know, right, that's even the though story. it's just one that's, shot. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Story and good and emotion and good dialogue. And, you know, Harvey, I tell I mean, there, there's not it's not like that's a one or anything like it's like it's like Tim Roth in the back and then over the show, over the camera, you know, over the seat back at, you know, Harvey Keitel as he's driving, leaning over, talking to him. So it's like this beautiful, you know, car sequence. But I just thinking about like. Yeah, like you don't need the hood mount and the hostess tray and the other hostess tray and then the drone and the blah. It's like you could do it just with like two or three angles and it's going to be beautiful. There's, and there's a lot of car stuff in the movie that I might direct. So it's good to think about like, okay, like how do you want to approach your car sequences in a way that like A is going to be engaging and B is not going to like burn like six hours on like, you know, like one like small scene, you know, so... That's what I've been thinking about lately. But the other thing that you shouldn't burn your chance to do is to check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. And a big happy birthday to Robert Jones. Thanks so much, Robert, for the support. We're wishing you a happy birthday because you have supported us on Patreon. And Robert had a little thing to say. So here, here's what Robert, I'll just let Robert take it away. He says, I discovered your podcast only a short while ago, and I am currently on episode 61. Episode 61! Dear Lord Almighty, that is way back in the day. So I have some catching up to do. I have not yet met Liz on the podcast, but I am listening to your episodes as fast as possible, currently only at the speed of sound. Well, that's still pretty great. My family and I live have lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for the past 10 years. We are in the process of moving back to the San Diego area. 
San Diego. That's awesome. Charlotte to San, Di- San Diego. That's that's quite a that's kind of quite a change. One's a little bit more relaxing, I think. San Diego is very chill. As for the shout out, I appreciate it. Once upon a time, I was interested in making movies, but I never really did anything with it. I enjoy living vicariously through you guys, and I appreciate the time you put into making the podcast a reality. You don't have to say anything special, but if you want to refer me as Carolina Jones, that would be fun. My goal is to bump my contribution level up up after we get settled in a new place, hopefully by the end of April. Well, Robert, you don't have to bump anything if you can't, if you don't want to. We love the support you're giving us now. It's amazing. Thank you for the support. And I hope the move goes well. And, you know, I kind of hope that you uh, jump back into movie making at one point in your life. You know, it's never too late. You can always make your first movie. So, also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, or global brands like DJI. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty great. Use our code MMIH to get 20% off your yearly subscription today. I don't think anyone's done that yet, but it'd be great if someone did. But without any more further delay, here's our chat with Tom Harp. Tom, can you give us the elevator pitch for Donor Party? The Donor Party is about a woman who, in the very opening of the movie, finds out that the her ex-husband, who said he never wanted to have kids, she runs into him at a garden store with his new wife, a baby and a baby Bjorn, and she's clearly pregnant. So that whole, it throws everything in the last 15 years of her life into complete disarray. She thinks she's never going to be a mom, and her friends say quite wisely that you don't really need a husband to be a mom. And they hatch an idea to get her pregnant by the old fashioned means <laughs> at a party. They're going to do it that that it's like, it's not an orgy. <laughs> Maybe I should at this party that's going to be, you know, that she's going to surreptitiously find potential donors at. And then as the old saying goes, hilarity ensues. <laughs> nice. How many days did you shoot the film? We shot the film over 15 days. It was a very compact schedule. What can you talk about with regard to the budget? I can't officially, but I can say that every it was a union job. And I can say that we, it was very important to do. I, it's, I'm really, I'm very proud of the work that we did on the film and, and what we were able to accomplish in 15 days. It's is any filmmaker knows it's really tough. And we had a hundred page script, which, you know, went just, which means every day we were at least six and a half pages and that we had an 11 page day once. And that's hard. That's just tough to, to do, especially with an ensemble comedy. We had two cameras going. So there's obviously costs that are involved with that, doing it appropriately. But producers Ross Cohn and Nancy Lepardi were incredibly smart about how to make sure that every every penny that we spent is up on the screen. And it's it's a marvel what they were able to do. And I think that the other thing that, that helps is that I had done a lot of Funny or Die sketches, which you only have one day to do. And while they may, you know, they're usually on like three to five minutes tops, it's still, you got to, you've got to get the whole thing done in a day, whether it's lots of location moves or, or whatever it is, or lots of dialogue, lots of characters. So I come from the world of knowing how to get that kind of stuff done 
quickly. And then I knew, you know, one of the the things that that I have in my back pocket is, uh, you know, I started out as a cinematographer. When I was coming up as a cinematographer, I lived in Seattle. And one of the people that I worked with originally was Lynn Shelton, who was an inspiration on so many levels. We were friends. Our kids were the same age. You know, we just knew each other through social and professional things. And when my career, well, I got a script option. And so then I came to LA and and I was excited and I was like, it's all going to happen. And then, you know, that didn't happen. And she started making her movies. And I said, I, I, you know, let me take you out to a really nice meal and just tell me what the formula is for how to keep your costs down. And the thing that she said, which there's some stuff that's super obvious, like limit your locations because location moves will kill you, but also limit the screen time. And I don't mean like the length of the film, like have it only over a day or a compacted period of time so that you don't have to worry about lots of different costume changes because that will take time and lots of different hair and makeup stuff because that'll take time. So try to keep it all as contained as possible. And then the most important thing that she said was lean into your strengths, which that that hit the hardest because for me, you know, what I had always gotten lovely comments for my scripts for was that people love my dialogue and people loved the comedy. And so I just was like, okay, I can do a story with a lot of, you know, that has heart and has, you know, the, the kinds of humor that I really like. And fi- and I'll find a way to, to do a story with that. And then when the idea came for Donor Party, I was like, oh, it's perfect. It has the ability, I have the, the ability to do the comedy, to have dialogue driven character work, but also, you know, in an environment where I can also have some good sight gags and some other, you know, some good physical comedy as well. And, you know, I really took what she said to heart and and wrote two things with that model. The pandemic, people were looking for things to be able to make and create a bubble. And I was able to get both of them made uh, during the pandemic because people just wanted something that that would be a good story that would be, you know, doable, producible. So, but the budget is low. Let me just, let me just be clear. (laughs) (laughs) The budget is low. You kind of touched on this question a little bit in your last answer, but I'll still ask it anyways. How did you come up with the idea for Donor Party? The idea for the Donor Party comes from basically doing a lot of general meetings and having first person I would talk to or even the exec who was like the VP of development, almost like nine times out of 10 was a woman. Nine times out of 10 was a woman in her 30s. And I kept hearing over and over, I got married very young. I had kids very young. So I'm kind of I've done all that and was having these meetings with people who were saying how hard it was to find a guy and how there was like a clock that they were living under. And, you know, I've been, there's no really good way to say this. As a kid, I was not very athletic. And I, at the time, if, unless you played soccer, there weren't that many sports for girls. So I hung out at recess with a lot of girls and was, I had asthma and was just kind of, that was who I grew up with. You were an indoor kid. I was an indoor kid too, right? That's how I, that's what I call it. Indoor kids. Yeah. Indoor kids. (laughs) And I played Dungeons and Dragons like, and you know, I had my Atari and you know, that was, so it was, you know, my first play dates, you know, I had about 50, 50 with boys and girls and 
I now see that that's not as common as I just didn't know any different. So I grew up around women and I think that made it very easy for me to kind of have those easy conversations. And I guess having the ring on makes it makes me someone safe. And so people open up. So I get this. And I, I think that there's like this confessional aspect of I overshare and people tend to overshare. And that's where a lot of the conversations went to. So I heard this over and over and over, the idea of people who were brilliant and funny and uh, charming. And I'm like, how are you not, you know, like it just drove me crazy. And I, and I felt for, for them. And and I was like, well, and one of them said, you know, I just, you know, I just want to make sure I can have a kid. And I was like, well, you don't have to have a husband to have a baby. And I also have adopted. So, you know, there's lots of, that's one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about in the donor party was all the different ways that you can get a family. And I'm not saying that what she's doing is ethical, but I do think it's understandable. I, I think that if you look at all, even all the short films I've done, and and home delivery there's a lot of i try not to judge my characters and just i just love them and i love actors and i and so i hope that that love comes across that people can feel that you know you're going to see messy complicated people and making messy complicated decisions and and so that's where the idea came from is the, is just conversations that i had with with people who were struggling with th- this issue. And, and I, you know, my heart went out to them and I, and that one conversation where I flippantly was like, well, you don't really have to have a husband to have a baby was, you know, afterwards I was like, that's a good idea. And then I woke up <laughs> and I, and I went to my whiteboard and I actually have this still because I took a picture of it. I was like, this is a good idea. And I wrote a heist film, but they steal sperm. <laughs> it's just like, oh, that's fun. That was a funny idea. So I, you know, for me, one of the things that I really think drives all the stories that I've told, and I think is a good engine for comedy is it seemed like a good idea at the time. Like that's where almost all of my stories start from. It's like, oh, this, this could work without, you know, and then it's like, oh, my old enemy, the consequences of my actions. So... <laughs> Well, in, in trying to put together a timeline for listeners, like when would you say you had that meeting where you made that flippant remark until the release? Like what is the duration, right, from then to now? The best way to say it is that I have a, a way that I know that I need to write a story. And that's if I can't let go of it. Like the idea just keeps kind of banging up against my subconscious. But what I do is I have this app called Simple Note and I write down, it can be a title, it can be a line of dialogue, it could be anything. And I have, and then you can put a tag and I put a tag that says dialogue. So when I'm looking for dialogue ideas, I'll, you know, I'll be like, oh, that was really funny. I need to put that in there. But I also have an idea bin thing. And this one went right to the idea for, I got the idea for the title really quickly was like the donor party. That's just a really funny play on the Donner party and like a dinner party and all these kinds of things. I was like, that's good. So I knew right away I had a title and I had a kind of a general idea and then I let it happen for a while. So I think that the, that initial meeting was maybe sometime in 2016, 2017. I took the picture of it, maybe 2018, because I think I looked at the, the, the date on the picture and it was and I think it was 2018 from that, the whiteboard picture. And then I started writing it. Uh, this one came really fast. Like this, the title came fast and I had all of these things that I just wanted to say about it. So 2018 to 2022, when we shot it to 2023, when it came out, 
for me, that's, I, you know, first of all, I haven't had a, a movie happen and now it's, you know, that, that timeline may shorten, I hope, knock wood, but you know, there, I, there, there are ideas that I've had that took six years before I knew what the story was. And so you just never know, you know, how long it's going to take or, or where it's going to be. But that's always a good sign for me. If I know a title right off the bat, I, that can help me. And, or if I know, if I know the genre, then it starts to, things start to attract to it like a magnet. So there'll be an idea and, and I'll say, oh, okay, there's, this is an idea that I've had in my, in the back of my mind. And it becomes this, like a magnet's the best way of doing it. And when you used to have a magnet and go through the dirt and like all of the, the stuff would come out of the dirt and stick to the magnet, I kind of feel like that's what I do for a while. And my brain is doing that in the background. It's kind of seeing what ideas attract to it. And that one just happened faster than most. And I knew that that was a good premise. And it also fit Lynn's model. Like it was a really, because I wrote Home Delivery a long time ago when we had that one almost go several times. But it for me, it was, this one happened pretty quickly, all things considered. If you could change one thing about the film, either like the final product or like the process of making it or anything at all, whatever, however you want to answer it, what would that, what would that one thing be that you would change? COVID. <laughs> Well, it with it within your control as a human person, you know, you're not you're not like you can't just wave your wand and COVID goes. Right, away. I know. Well, like, I mean, COVID <laughs> was a COVID was a real thing for us because we had, you know, everyone was obviously tested and, you know, I have all these behind the every single behind the scenes picture of me is me in a mask. And I met up with one of the actors for lunch, you know, outside recently. He was like, that's what you look like. And I was like, yeah, that's what I look like. They just had no idea what I look like. That's so funny. So if I could change anything, that's a tough question. I think that, yeah, okay, I do know. Because the the AD, uh, the second AD said, you know, if you had a shot list, it would be really helpful. And I was like, I do have a shot list. It's right there. And she's like, oh, well, maybe have some storyboards because I guess <laughs> no one, you know, no one read this, the shot list, um, which is fine. The DP and I were on the same page with it. Yeah. But I think that that is actually one thing that's very helpful that people don't talk about. And I looked at, I always had this, this guilt of like, oh, I can't, I, I don't know how to draw really well. Or if I'm trying to draw, like I'll actually try to do the shading. Like I really care about how it looks. <laughs> and then I saw James Gunn's things and it was like, it's basically an oval with two dots and a straight line or a, like a big O mouth and like some amorphous looking thing in the background and, you know, an arrow and, you know, like literally stick figure things. And that made me feel so much better just to see that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I can do that. I can, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of a storyboard, I think is, is good. And I, you know, when communicating is really, it, it, communicating tone is really important and hard. And so that was a very important thing for me early on was making sure that we're all making the same movie. Cause I, again, from being a, cinematographer i'd seen where that hadn't been communicated and you had people making like actors making three different movies like not knowing what the the tone was and what and comedy's really really hard because you have to make sure that everyone like one person going over the top in a movie where you like you can't have jim carrey in an episode of curb your enthusiasm doing ace ventura i'm sure he could do a brilliant job you can't have Ace Ventura in Curb Your Enthusiasm. That just, it, would, it wouldn't work. And you can't have James Brooks style comedy in something like Children's Hospital because it just wouldn't work either. Like 
you have to, each movie has to have its own language. That part I feel like I got right. But the part where, you know, I think if I'd had a couple of, if I'd even done storyboards on even five scenes, it would have helped our day on five days that were really tough and we mm-hmm. had to get a lot done. So I, that's the prep work that I, I mean, I, I'm meticulously prepped it in every other way, but apparently like the AD called me out on that. That was good. It was good feedback. I'm glad I, you know, I'm not going to make that mistake in the future. I don't think you always need storyboards personally, but that's just my take on it. But anyways, <laughs> I think there's some things where it was, it's very obvious the scene, because you guys have seen it, the scene where she could, where Amandine walks into the bathroom and, and she's upside down. I knew that that, like I wrote that scene. I was like, that's going in the trailer. I just know it's going in the trailer. I didn't get to cut the trailer, but when I watched the trailer for the first time, I was like, there's the scene. I knew it was going to go in the, in the movie because it was just this image that I knew would be funny and eye grabbing and, and it would just work. So that you don't need a storyboard, but there are some things where you need to get the idea of a, how a group dynamic works and how I wanted to look through things to see people and and that's tough to communicate. You know, we you know, I tried to say watch a bunch of Robert Altman because there's that's that <laughs> he does so well, you know. And yeah. so yeah, that I think that storyboards are essential for certain things. I totally agree you don't need them for two person dialogue scenes. Like that's pretty self-explanatory. But I do think it's really good to to make sure that you have a way to communicate with the crew well. And if you are not someone who is a big talker like I am, like that can be hard. And and a storyboard really helps in those situations. But I do love to talk as uh, probably is pretty obvious right now. So it's not that hard for me to sit down with people and talk to them. And and it was really vital to use the time and prep to do that. And with Malin, you know, we spent 30 hours before we started the movie mm-hmm. really honing in on her character and making sure that we were on the same page because the whole movie's on her back. Like there's two scenes that she's not in. If it if if Jacqueline doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. So let's go back in time a little bit because I want to. Alric and I are talking a little bit lately in our own personal conversations about false starts, and you know it's something that comes up in a lot of our conversations on the podcast. Right? Is this idea of thinking something's going to go, but it doesn't. And you alluded to that with home delivery, and I don't know if it happened with donor party, but I just would love to hear. You know, you come to LA, you get repped by Gersh, you know, there's a lot of anticipation. How do you keep yourself going and how do you keep yourself motivated when this industry is basically broken and designed to fail at every opportunity? Sorry, that's just me imprinting no, the conversation a, very, a little bit. Yeah, I think you nailed it. <laughs> You know, I could ju- I could make the flipping joke and say, well, I used to have hair before I came to LA, which is only sort of true. <laughs> but I think that the reality for me was, you know, one of the reasons I didn't want to move to LA until I had a reason to move to LA. So there was a script that got optioned and we were getting, you know, I had a writing partner at the time and we were getting all kinds of general meeting requests. People were responding really well to the script. That's hugely important to, you know, to your career to have some kind of, you know, not just like, oh, there's, it's great to get general meetings and it's wonderful to meet the people, but it's, you know, knowing that 
your script is getting, you know, is being seriously considered and they're trying to package it and do all that kind of stuff. That's, that's huge. And I think that that can, it's something like that. An early win like that can really carry you for a while. Certainly helped my, my rep, but I have, I have an agent who just really believed in, in me and in what I could do. And I write really fast. So, you know, I was giving him new material, a, a new script at least once a year. So he knew, and we had lots of good interest throughout the years for different things. I remember when I, I got on the, it's not deadline, but there's some, there's someone, it's like the hot, the, the hot list or whatever. And it was great. It, and then they announced a movie that was almost the same premise as mine. <laughs> but it was, you know, like the, that's those, you need those successes. But what was frustrating to me was not getting anything made. And that can really just eat away at you. So that's when I started working with, I made a short film. I, I pitched a web series to Rain Wilson and his company, Soul Pancake. And that we made a pilot and it was this idea about a fortune cookie writer who is just is sick of his life. It's like his family business. And we got Randall Park to be in it. And it was fantastic and a, a really just fun to make and fun to do. And that really got me kickstarted back into doing things. And I was able to, after that, work with Funny or Die and do some things. And Again, just getting something made that people could see was a huge part of how, and then, you know, like, oh, okay. One of them got into, you know, cause they don't do any festival submissions at all. They just, it's like, put it online, but you can do it on your own. So I submitted, I submitted the things that I did to festivals and one that was like a horror one called heavy flow about a vampire who drinks menstrual blood because he doesn't want to kill his victims. And I just thought that was a gross and funny concept and kind of this weirdly feminist spin on it. Because what do you do when you find out your boyfriend is a vampire only drinks menstrual blood? It's like that to me was funny and, and a good Halloween. Like you could pull that out every Halloween and put it up and it would get a laugh. That did really well on the, sh on the festival circuit. And there was another one that I did called Exit Survey, which was a friend of mine had had an exit survey from a job. And I was like, what if you could do an exit survey for you know, like a bad relationship. And that was where that story came from. And I just really, to me, getting those kinds of things done, it was always driven by what do I find amusing and not, you know, is this a four quadrant type of movie? Is it, you know, like, and that freedom to create and, and create a body of work that was beholden to kind of nobody and just, you know, was what I found funny and, and the people who I worked with found funny was such a blessing. I mean, and it really gave me, it also helped me because I, I worked with a lot of the groundlings and that was, you know, that is a fantastic training ground for that, for comedy actors. I mean, Saturday Night Live has used the groundlings and UCB as like their farm system for forever. So working with amazing people. And then when the pandemic, right before the pandemic hit, I was talking to Rain Wilson about a podcast idea that he had. And so again, like these are all these things that can happen that are small successes. They're not like getting a movie made, but at the same time, it was, it was so wonderful to be asked to, to be one of the writers on his podcast, but also to produce it because he knew that I knew a lot of people that, that were up and coming comedy people that wouldn't be like, yes, you have to pay me like a thousand dollars an episode to do it. And I was able to get a lot of the groundlings who I had already worked with into Dark Air, the podcast work. And then Rain opened up his Rolodex and we had people like Tom Lennon and, you know, a lot of the folks who were on The Office and Matt Jones, who is hilarious, Steve Agee and all these 
like phenomenally gifted comedy talents there. And then I was able to bring some of them onto the movies. It was great, you know? So each thing kind of led to another, you know, one led to another, led to another, but they're not, I think if anyone were to look at my career, it does not look like a straight path. And I don't think that very many people's are. I just think that I don't have the mentality to, like I had a writing partner who the the development process on Driver's Ed was heartbreaking to him. And when it didn't, and then to have it not get made after all the the stuff that he felt just wasn't germane to the story, it soured him on the whole industry and he left. So then I I had moved down to LA and I no longer had a writing partner and I no longer, and I didn't have reps at that point. And I just didn't, you know, like, but my temperament is one where I just keep going because it's dumb luck and, and it's dumb luck anyway. And I also am married to an amazingly supportive woman who has a very regular income. <laughs> so that helps a lot. And, you know, I've been the primary caregiver. So when the kids are at school, I write. And that's been the way that we've worked it. So I don't have a very normal career, but at the same time, I don't think there is such a thing as a normal career. I think we all find our own way into doing it. That's such a long answer. And I hope it... Um. <laughs> Well, I, so I, I, maybe I missed it and apologies if I did, but like you, so you, you moved to Los Angeles. Can you, can, I just want to, basically want to hear the timeline of how this all happened. So you had your script optioned, you moved to Los Angeles, it fell apart. You didn't have reps anymore. Right. But like what, what led to you getting repped from, from, oh. cause that's, I think that's like the mystery part that everyone wanted. Cause they're moving to Los Angeles. Then what do I do? Right. And then like getting right. to where you are now is like, the dream. So like, I'd love to hear about the, the circumstances that led to your representatives coming on board. Okay. That's, and and that actually is a very, so the, I'll try to do it as cleanly as possible. The <laughs> came down and had, and, and not only, okay. So not only did I have a writing partner, I had a manager at the time. And the idea was that I was going to move down and be the beachhead because he had kids who were in high school. And so the, I just didn't feel my kids were in elementary school and you can kind of do that to kids, but once they hit middle school, it's really tough to move them. I moved in middle school and it was really tough for a, for a couple of years. So I didn't want that to my kids. So we had the, we had everything set up. We had a manager. And, and like I said, we went on a bunch of generals. So those generals, you know, I had all the contacts from those generals. And, and when my writing partner quit, he, he also had a day job, which I didn't have. So it was sort of frustrating for me to not be able to write except for when he would, cause that's, that's how we would write as we would write when we were together. So I started writing this story on my own. And it's not at all like anything else that I had done up to that point called The Devil Takes a Holiday. And I just had envisioned a world in which the devil was tired of running hell and wanted to take a break um, <laughs> and what that would do to the world and what it would do to hell and what, you know, and it was a big, crazy concept, Bruce Almighty type of, you know, like a big concept movie. And the manager I had at the time read it. I sent it to her and I sent it to, to my writing partner. And he was like, this is good. I can, he had no interest in writing it. That's how I knew that it was something that I needed to write on my own because it was just banging up against my subconscious. And my manager reached out to him and said, you have to convince Tom to not share this with anyone because it'll kill your career. And I was like, well, that's the end of that relationship because I can't, you can't work with someone who can't say that to your face, like that they need to be able to 
your rep needs to be able to be honest with you. So then I had no rep, no writing partner moving to LA, <laughs> no prospect. <laughs> but, and this is where I'm going to give Franklin Leonard some love. I put it up on the blacklist and it got nines. And, nice. and that nines. was, that felt so good. So, and then they, you know, they, it was early on in the blacklist live and it, and I was on the same list as like top unproduced screenplays as like Passengers and The Imitation Game and The Devil <laughs> Takes a Holiday. I was like, oh, see, that's awesome. <laughs> so that made me feel in- incredible. That, that was another early win where you need that early win to be able to say, oh, people who are seeing it, it, it you can have someone say, this is horrible and it's going to kill your career. And then you can also have someone say, this is the funniest thing I've read in ages. So it's not that I ignore the people who say negative things. It's just that you can't, human nature is to sort of hone in on that one thing and like business owners will focus on that one Yelp review that is horrible and and ignore the 90 people who say, I love, you know, coming here and it's the food is amazing and the service is great, whatever. So again, your temperament has to be one where you can, you just want to keep going. So I had that under my belt and I got the nines. And so I wrote it. I sent out an email to all the people who were, who had been fans of driver's ed and said, Hey, you know, I've got a new thing. It's, it's a solo effort, but it's got nines on the blacklist. And, you know, if you want to take a look at it, I'd be happy to send it along to you. And I would say 70% of the people didn't respond back, but 30% did. And out of that, a couple people wanted to re-meet and talk about what else I wanted to do. And one of them was Jessica Green, who is has become a friend and just uh, is a lovely person. Now she's Jessica Harrison. And we t- I talked about another idea that I had called Drunk Dial, which was basically, what if, what if you had Fatal Attraction as a rom-com? <laughs> oh, and that script was, so I worked on that and it was just a really fun idea. I love rom-coms, but I, I feel like the meet cute is really, it's tough to pull off and it's tough to do without feeling cliched. So the whole idea was what if there was someone who you who was on your do not call list who you drunk dialed in the middle like Paul Giamatti's drunk dial in Sideways is is perfect and so is John Favreau's and Swingers and so I was like what if you made that kind of a call and the person came back into your life and then you couldn't get rid of them was basically the idea and mm. And would that be good for you? Like the person who's on your do not call list, you make that call and they come back into your life. It's Janice from Friends. Sorry. I just. <laughs> That's, it's true. It is. And um, that was a very, that script got a lot of attention. And when we were done, I, when we were taking it out, I said, I think, I think I should get an agent to help us. And she submitted it to agencies that she knew and the agents that she liked at those agencies. And the, the folks at Gersh found it and loved it. And then I, I literally was like, I've got all this other stuff too. And they're like, we're just going to focus on this for right now. But yes, that's great. What else do you have? <laughs> do you have anything that's, that is a TV idea? And because I was able to articulate a couple of ideas for that, they knew that I had more than just one, that, that I wasn't just a one and done kind of deal. So they, and they read, they read my other scripts and they were like, okay, everything is good. You know, it may not be sellable, but it's all good. So we know that you can send you out on generals and get you 
in the kinds of rooms where you might be able to hear someone's idea and say, I want to take, you know, what's your take on that? So that's, that's literally what's, what got me wrapped. But right when I did that, I had this idea for home delivery and I had written home delivery after drunk dial. And this is 2014. And the independent financing guy at Gersh, whose name is Jay Cohen, an, an amazing supporter. And just, I'm, I'm so grateful for everyone at Gersh. They've been so, so, so good to me. They've, you know, when I have a script that's finished, you know, they've helped me get a cast together to do a table read in the big conference room. I mean, it's, so you get to hear, so I get to hear it out loud and find out, oh, that sounds false or, or see where the laughs are happening in the room. It's like, yeah, okay, this is working. That one, not so much. That's that, that didn't work. It's your first chance at getting a test screening. And that was great um, and has been great. So they've been wonderful. And he read the script on the way back from, he read Home Delivery on the way back from Toronto, where he had seen a bunch of really downer movies. And <laughs> he's like, I just want to do something funny. And this is really funny. And let's do it. So we, he was hugely responsible for getting that in front of people and getting it set up. We were set up at Voltage. Wow. And I'm the boat anchor in this case, because I wrote it for me to direct. So like literally the reason why they don't want to make it is because of me. <laughs> and I understand that. Like I totally, totally get that it's hard to trust a first time director. So again, that feeds back into why I wanted to do the funnier die stuff and just get some more things that could show people that I know what I'm doing as a director. But the, so the timeline is, you know, I came down here with an, with a script that was optioned. Everything fell apart. My writing partner left, my manager left, but I had a, just a crazy script that got attention on the blacklist. And I was able to turn the old generals into new generals. One of them was, a, you know, I talked about something that really sparked for her went hardcore on that. That one got an agent. We had that one set up. Oh yes, we had that one set up. And then at Sony and then the hack happened, the North oh, Korean wow. and everything got shut down and, and all of the, and it wasn't set up, set up, but no, there had been no contracts, but we were in talks. So it was, you know, that was another thing. And it was funny because I, then I worked with Randall on the, you know, on the thing, like right as that was happening, we, we did wow. the short film. So it's all, this whole world is crazy and it, and it revolves around. And then it, it did take a long time for anything else to happen. I chased a lot of open writing assignments as a writer and I always wrote specs because that was the one thing I could control. So, you know, I would, I, every year I would write a new spec and a lot of them made noise, but didn't get made. I had a TV idea that was very close to getting made, but I, I they probably needed to pair me with, uh, they couldn't find a good match showrunner wise. And Shonda, I was a Shakespeare related story because I'm a giant theater nerd. And, and Shonda Rhimes was doing the Romeo and Juliet story that she did that was on for like a summer. So, but because she, like, if Shonda comes in and says, this is what I'm doing, like everyone kind of backs away from a story. So let's move on to our final six questions. These are questions we ask oh. everyone. 
Well, it, it's time. <laughs> oh, gosh. I have no idea what time it is, even. I, I know, but I mean, there's just so much more we haven't talked about. You know, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Yeah, but I, I mean, know that I Tom's going to go on. I don't know if you guys want to go on. I don't have something right after this. Samantha, that would be up to you. Well, but... I have a heart out at 1015, but, then, uh, but okay. let's do it. I already know that Tom is going to provide gold in these answers, so I'm not too worried about missing all out. Let's do these. And then if there's time before 1015, yeah. I have one more question. Yeah, okay. But I'll, I'll, of course. I'll save it for now so tom if you hear that we'll try to do rapid fire for these rapid okay. fire what's the first film you ever made it could be the first film you ever wrote but what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it the first thing i ever did was in film school it was in film school i wanted to be very much like the art film guy and it wasn't until i had kids and started changing diapers that i was like life is not artsy pretentious it's all about like this is the stuff to be to clean the diaper to wipe poop off of a person who you love with your whole heart is the weirdest conundrum and i just was like i can't take my life seriously after this it was like okay i have to just hone in on the comedy so it was a, a student film that was very poetic and and pretty it was all in focus and and you know which is not the case for a lot of student films it was all properly exposed and perfectly in focus and it it was you know it's okay what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received well lynn's advice was absolutely critical so write a story that you if you want to direct it yourself write a story that you can control the variables as much as possible so keep the locations down keep the the time span down and lean into your strengths. And I think that leaning into your strengths is tough when you start out because you don't know what your strengths are. So I really, you know, if I could give any filmmaking advice, it's make shorts, like make, make a bunch of shorts and find out what you're good at and what you suck at and get better at what you suck at and keep working on the things that, because they're going to suck. They, they, your films, you could have a brilliant script, but it's still going to, it's probably going to suck. There's a movie that Quentin Tarantino will never let anyone see that's his first film. So that, and that's okay. Like he knows that it's, it's not good. And he, and he learned everything he learned and, and went and did Reservoir Dogs. So that's what happens when you can take your own feedback and you're like, oh, well, okay, I got to work on this. Mm, now I just want to see that movie. Well, everyone does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's clips. You can find clips on YouTube. I've, we've watched oh, part of it. Well done. What's, give us an example of bad filmmaking advice or bad screenwriting advice i mean the question is what's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received but we can keep it open what's the worst filmmaking advice the worst advice is is to, to read the trades don't don't read the trades. agree agree don't because the movie that is coming <laughs> out now was something that they came up with two years ago and by the time you are making your version of that movie it's a trend that's already two years past like just find the thing that makes that Find the story that you want to get to the end of because writing is not easy. You have to want to finish it. So don't write something that's to sell. You know, like if you have commercial instincts, then it will sell. And if you don't have commercial instincts, then it won't. And that's okay too. But it's, yeah, just don't read the trades. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I named my son, well, my son's middle name is is Wilder after Billy Wilder. And, and I <laughs> think that, you know, my highest aspiration is could if I can make the kinds of movies that Billy Wilder would make without the Hayes Code, that's what, that I feel like that's what my calling is. He was able to do all kinds of different things. You know, Double Indemnity has wickedly funny parts in it, but it is a noir. Man, like, love that movie. 
It's so great. So and good. The apartment is really, really funny, but also really sad. You know, it has all of that. And you're never going to get a better ending ever than Some Like It Hot. <laughs> like, that is the greatest ending of all time. And True. if you can just, <laughs> like, for me, that's. So he's in, I have a lot of idols, but my goal would be to to be able to tell lots of different kinds of stories with, you know, that always have that wilder touch. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? I don't have, you know what? I actually love the crazy life that I, I think that living the life that I've had has given my writing a lot more depth than the people who stayed in LA and who stayed in the industry the whole time and didn't get out into the, into the world. Wait, are you not in LA anymore? No, you are, I but I am. Okay. What I'm saying is, I, you know, I went to school in LA and then I, and then I followed my wife mm. to Alaska. She's a doctor. So I went like to all of her medical school and internship and everything I've done. I've crisscrossed the whole West coast and that. So some people say, well, you're getting a really late start on this relatively speaking, but I look at Orson Welles and like he did citizen Kane at 25 and then struggled his whole rest of his life to make movies. And so it's not a good, like you just do it the way that you need to do it. Like I actually, if I could go back in time, I would say, I would tell myself to be less pretentious in film school and to try to, and have tried to make some comedy stuff in film school because I made some early clunkers with comedy stuff that, you know, I would have liked to have had that done in, you know, in college and then be, been able to hone in on that voice a little bit better then. But that's really it. Be less pretentious. I love the phrase early clunkers in re- referring to your own work. It's hilarious. I gotta, I use, mean, I gotta use it. <laughs> We have to be honest with ourselves. Otherwise, you can't grow. So Yeah, yeah. Last question. Is making movies hard? Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. But it's also so, it's so joyous. And when you get to work with the people, if you can get everyone to make the same movie, and that's your, really your most important job, then it can be fantastic. We created such a great vibe on set. And when people, like yesterday, we went to the talk. And Jerry O'Connell brought Aaron and, and Mullen and, and Rob out. And they, it, it's very much that they're old friends, but also they loved working together and they loved working on the film and they had such a good time. And my job was really to not have the stress on them to kind of absorb the stress myself and stay to stay true to what the film wanted to be. And yeah, it's tough making your day and it's tough, you know, you've got when you're on a union job, you've got all the meal penalties and all that kind of stuff you have to think about. But ultimately, if you can if you can get everyone to make the same movie, then everyone is doing their best. And you know, the only thing that I would the, the filmmaking advice I would give because of what I've heard from people is that they don't get it is I called all the agents thank and thank them for helping get their and managers and thank them for, you know, trusting me with their, you know, their talent. I thanked, you know, all the department heads. I've been at this whole month, I've been writing posts on Instagram, thanking the different people and showing pictures because I want people to hire them and I want them to, and I want people to know Mm -hmm. how good the talent is that made this thing happen. And comedy is like a souffle. Like it's really light as air, but it's so hard to do. And it's so easy to screw up. It's 
So if it reaches people and if people like it and if people laugh, that is the greatest thing in the world for me. So, you know, it's, there's, but there's a lot of work that goes into just that, into making it look light as air and effortless. So, and hopefully when you watch it, you don't sense that you, you don't see it. You just fall into the story and you fall in love with the characters and you, you get swept up in the ride. Amazing. Mark, you got three luxurious minutes. All right. Yeah. Hit me. Well, it's too long. It's it's not going to it's not going to work. I'll have to <laughs> Okay. Well, I just want to hear about like cuz you're talking about this this point in the story where you were at Voltage with the movie and then they're like, "Oh, well, we don't want you to be the director." So then you went off and directed this funny or die stuff. But I want to kind of hear about like they actually not- were they supported me in being oh, the did. director. They did. Oh, okay. And they had an 18-month option on the material. They tried their hardest. It's not their fault, you know. It's okay. like I was really the the boat anchor, you know, as a as someone who hadn't directed a movie. And it's So it was hard for them to get the investors on board because to get actors. Of, oh, to, to get, get actors. actors on board. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. So then what's the change? So that, like what so what was it literally just like doing those directing jobs that like gave got got the cast to trust you or like what was it that allowed you to make the movie in 2022? I would say that there's a combination of things. One I was obviously you know obviously the beginning of that answer is yes, I had more stuff to show people. But it's not, you know, doing funny or die stuff is like sketch work on SNL. Like there's still, it's a heightened reality and it's not the same as doing, you know, something that's, it's also, it's not sustained. So like the character arc of a, of a movie, it's hard to make that leap when, when you're talking to people, but I got better at communicating my vision is one thing. Mm. And I got more clear on what it is that, that, that I wanted to do. And I think that they were also, their model that they had was based on foreign sales. That's, that's right where they had it. And it's tough to get. So the people who are the right person for that and the people who are the right, you know, comedy is really tough because sometimes people say it doesn't really travel. Right. But, you know, like Lynn Shelton, again, who I adore with my whole life, she made Hump Day and it got remade in France because people really connected with it. And I feel like that's something that you just have to believe in yourself beyond. So they tried and and I have nothing bad to say about Voltage at all. They they tried their hardest. I was the boat anchor that was making it not happen. And then, but to Gersh's credit, Jake Cohen never, ever gave up on the project. And it, you know, it went went along through a lot of different people. And the person who eventually found it is someone who saw it when he was working at another company. And when he left that company to start his own company, he said, he called my agent and said, is home delivery still available? I want that to be my first movie. And my agent was like, let me, um, let me check on that. And like, <laughs> yeah, it's available. <laughs> like, didn't want to seem too desperate, but it was very, you know, everyone has believed in the story and, and it just took the right combination of timing group, you know, everything to work it out. And I think the pandemic really, the silver lining for me of the pandemic is that people were really hungry to make things that they could contain. And both home delivery and donor party are contained stories that you can make a bubble and and protect everyone. And you're not going to all these different places to make it happen. So that honestly opened it up for nice the possibility for that to happen. Yeah. And so did home delivery come first or did did don- the donor party come first? Which one did you direct first? I technically directed home delivery first. It was a 16-day shoot that I shot in March. Uh, it's coming up on a year 
tomorrow. Oh, wow. Since we started shooting it. And then we knew that we were going to make, uh, Malin was already signed on and we were ready to go with, with the donor party. But suddenly she got a window that opened up and she's like, okay, if you can make this movie in May, we can do it. And so I went from having <laughs> in, in March, shooting a movie, editing it in April, and then also, you know, editing that one while I'm prepping the donor party, pausing the the edit on home delivery while I shot the donor party. Wow. Then in June, I went to the edit of donor party in the morning and would go from 9.30 till about 5.30, drove across town to another edit suite and went from about 6.30 to 11.30, drove all the way home, went to sleep, repeated it for the entire month of June. Wow. Why did you have to do the post on both of them so quickly? Was it just like requirements from the production companies or the, the distributors? Yep. They want to get their movie out. Wow. They want to get their movie, you wow. know, they need to make their money, which I totally get. So it was a very crazy summer. In both in both those scenarios, was it just sorry to interrupt. <laughs> was it both was it distributors who pre-bought the movie and then like they were funding it and so they had like foreign sales set up and like that was how the movie got funded and you didn't have to raise any money on your own, you Correct. know. Correct. Okay, wow. Amazing. But I was, Crazy. I mean, I wrote the donor party to crowdfund originally because I was so frustrated that it was taking so wow. long to get. And I, I was like, I know enough Groundlings that I can get a great cast of, of folks from Groundlings and some UCB folks to do it. And then a producer, I, you know, I sent it to producers who I'd met before and they loved it. Ross and Nancy, they loved it. And they saw a path forward to make it. And they took it to Vertical and Vertical loved it. And they agreed on on all the stuff. And they were like, if you can get if you can get three faces to put on a poster, we can do it. And literally the poster has three faces on it. They were not kidding. Wow. So that's that is the way that it worked. And and it, but they totally believed in it. They were fantastic in in supporting it. Um, you know, we've it's it's been tremendous. So yeah. And and like just because I'm actually going through this right now on on a movie that I'm attached to, where we're like, you know, basically pitching the distributor, trying to get them to say yes, sign off on a list of names, then go find the names. But when you did that, like, did they have a list of names that were acceptable to them, or were they just like they just find people that you think are good, and we'll and we'll let you know if they work or not? Well, it was a combination of a bunch of things. I think that for me, you know, they gave they gave me a list of potential people for, the, but one of the first people who I ever, and maybe this is something I should have said, one of the pieces of advice that I would give people is if you can find a casting director who wants to work with you, get them on board because they know the people who are looking for the material. They know the people who are great for different roles. There's a lot of people who I just had never thought of. Like Dana Dude was wonderful in the movie. And I- Oh, yeah. <laughs> so good. So good. And I had seen him- as falafel Phil on kicking it because my kids watch Disney, you know? <laughs> and so I was like, whatever. And I, I knew, uh, you know, and then I'd seen him on bajillion dollar properties. Yeah. thought he so was funny. great. But at the yeah. same time, I was, you know, it wasn't like he was the top of my mind. And when the casting director said, he's the guy, you, you're going to love working with him. He's the funniest. And he, he was right. Anthony was right. You know, Dan is perfect. Yeah. He's so hilarious. That was when I was, I watched your trailer and I was like, you have the funniest people in the world because you have like him and then obviously Rob Gordry, but then like, yeah. you know, some other, the bajillion dollar property guys in there. It's just like, what a, a dream cast. You could have asked for better. The, the best cast. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing that was so, for me, so amazing is, you know, really what it was. So 
getting so getting Malin was the big thing. And I I lobbied very, very hard for Malin because I thought of all the people, she would be, she's the person who just would be the the most able to. And I thought, you know, honestly, yeah. I was like, look, she's European. So she is going to have a, a different attitude towards sex than some of the people who might be a little turned off by it. Right. And that was a big consideration. So I didn't want to go through submission after submission after submission and give the script a bad name from people passing on it. So, uh, you right. know, it was really important for me to think who's funny and likable and will understand that, you know, there's no nudity in it, but it is sexual in nature and would be okay with that kind of thing. And Mullen was the top of my list. I just, I, wow. I love her. And I thought, you know, ever since the heartbreak kid, I've just thought she's someone who is so good and so underrated. And then trophy wife is criminally underrated as a, as a TV show. Like she is so good. And and Michaela Watkins is on that show and Natalie Morales is on that show. And Marsha Gay Harden's on this. I mean, that's a great, great, great show. I'm, I'm not seeing it. I got to check it out. It's great. And it only lasted one season, but that one season I saw it and I was like, she's brilliant. So knowing that and being a fan of hers, you know, then I wrote this letter that was like, I really think that you will kill this. I think that it's, it's a, a part that's made for you. I think you will get to shine in a way that that will showcase all of your talent. And she and I had the best meeting, you know, we just wow. really connected on it. So that's, that's honestly how it, and then she called people. Oh, wow. Like she Amazing. got Rob. That's what I was going to ask. So should she come first and then Rob and yes. Jerry come second? Okay. Wow. Amazing. She was the, she was the, the person who got the ball rolling. So, you know, it's this combination of working with Anthony Krauss, who was the casting director, who was literally, I got, I went to him before I went to producers. I just wanted to say like, here's a thing. I think I may crowdfund this, but I'm going to try getting it to producers. Would you be interested, even if it were that case? And do you know people? And he just, he really loved the script. Wow. And Amazing. yeah. And then, and then Mullen opened up her Rolodex and, and, and called Rob, Rob read it and loved it. And then, and I'd made a lookbook and Rob, when he read, when he saw the lookbook, I had people like Beth Dover in there. And he was like, well, I know you have good taste because you have Beth Dover in your lookbook and you yeah, can only fun. have Beth Dover in your lookbook if you have good taste. And I was oh, like, fun. so that gave him confidence in, in the tone that I was going for and in the kind of people that I wanted to work with. And then we got Beth. <laughs> so it wow. Like, Amazing. It's those kinds of things that, you know, are just, you know, little, little miracles, but being a fan of, of actors and remembering all the people who you've loved, that's a huge part of it. Nice. So it's like so important. And, and people I've watched so much stuff just to check on people's performances, but you have to, you kind of have yeah. to do it. not just because oh, yeah. you love it, but because you need to, you need to know what people are capable of oh, yeah. um, and you need to see their ticks so that on set, you know what to call them on and to say, I think you can dig deeper. Like when you see them doing their shtick, you need to be able to say, I think that there's a, a deeper answer here and get them to get to that real thing. So oh, that's amazing. Wow. What great advice. I could talk to you forever, but we got to wrap this up. Okay. Thank you so much. Oh, no, this has been great, man. This is fantastic. Where where should people go if they want to watch The Donor Party? How can they support you? Where should they follow you? All that stuff. 
Well, you know, I made it, I make it very easy for people to follow me. It's Tom Harp, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-P on Twitter, as long as that's still around <laughs> and Instagram. And I think I have something set up on Mastodon too, but I'm not sure. I never <laughs> gone there. Then the great thing is that the donor party comes out this Friday on, on demand everywhere. It's, they sent me the list of where it's going to be playing. I'm like, oh, that's literally everywhere in the United States in Canada. If you've got a nice. cable connection, you can get it. If you've got streaming, you can get it. It's you know, Apple, Amazon Prime Rental, Voodoo, nice. you know, everywhere. So look up the donor party, not the Donner party. It's not the cannibalism <laughs> movie. It's the donor party. So, so when this comes out, it will be out. So find it now, watch it, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm going to stop recording now. This was amazing. Absolutely. This was a delight. Thank you so much. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Tom? I remember the way he described himself as like non-threatening. I mean, that's really what kind of stood out is like his way of rationalizing why people like him or talk to him or open up to him, which is so funny because it's like, he's just a good listener. He's just a good listener and he's a good communicator. And I would say he doesn't have to couch it in all these other kind of self-deprecating reasons. <laughs> when I was writing Witchy, I was very like vocal about writing my short witchy on Twitter and, and Tom and I are Twitter friends. And that's how we know each other is Twitter, actually. And he's like, hey, I've got a few minutes. Can I call you? And I was like, sure, stranger on the internet who I don't know. Let's talk. And he read witchy. I don't even know if he read witchy, but I told him what it was. I think he read it. And he gave me such meaningful feedback for no reason, just because like I was a stranger on the internet, he was a stranger on the internet and he had a few minutes to his day and he wanted to help another filmmaker out. And it really did transform the way I looked at my project. So I just wanted to acknowledge that like he's very kind, he's very giving and very generous. And I think that's why if you go on Twitter and you see the way people have embraced Donor Party or him or as followers, he's really built a lovely indie film community. So no more couching it in, in I'm married, so I'm safe terms. He's just a cool guy. That's what I remember. Well, he's also just very friendly and like yeah. full of smiles and he's calm, you know, but he's got really positive energy. So I think that's probably a lot of like why people feel comfortable talking with him, you know, because yeah. he has that kind of welcoming, like caring, nice sort of thing to him. Like I immediately want to be his best friend. Like I wish I was his friend. And I will say that honestly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember just the amazing trajectory that he had, you know, and this whole thing where like he optioned his first script with his like old co-writer and, you know, he thought his dreams were coming true and whatever. And then it was like years and years and years later before anything else really happened, you know, and he moved his whole family to Los Angeles and all this stuff. But like, I just feel like, you know, it's a really good example of uh, determination and sticking with like what you love and, and just doing your thing, you know, and then eventually it kind of all worked out. Like, I kind of think it's sort of amazing how like he was able to make two movies back to back like that as his first two features. It's like yeah. not really what you hear about very often. So I thought that was fascinating. And just the way that he got his whole, you know, 
cast together and like the way the movies like you know kind of evolved it was sort of the exact opposite of the way that my projects have evolved you know like working with like you know reps and getting big production companies to sign on and like you know having them be paid jobs where you actually get paid to direct your first movies like that is just nutty it's like the second or third person we've talked to who's had this it's like man, like, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> Whatever I'm doing, it's not the right way. So, yeah, I don't know. I just thought, thought it was a really fantastic conversation, and it was he's just a joy to talk to. I could have talked to him for, like, another hour and never got bored, you know? But I sure tried, but we had to, we had to end the conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. I disappeared because I was like, I gotta go. <laughs> just back to what you just said. I, You know, I know you're kind of joking that you're saying where I'm doing it wrong, but it, I think that writer-directors can be commodified in more than one way, right? I mean, that's an obvious statement, but I'm just saying it out loud. And so because of that commodification, their reps want more scripts. They want more content. They want more IP. So I feel like that is an extra incentive for them to help out the client on a directing path. Whereas us, direct, we are writer directors, but we're not writing spec scripts in our spare time, right? We're not trying to sell scripts. We should be, but we're not. <laughs> and I would say that that makes us a less of an enticing opportunity for representation. Right. So right. he's figured that out, right? He figured out that, and I, I think we've had a, quite a few people on here who have figured out other ways in which they can incentivize someone to rep them. Yeah, totally. So Liz, is it time to play You're the Expert? Sure. I'm going to explain it. Okay, You're the Expert is a game, a second game that our producer Eric Toms has created out of thin air and we've never have we played it once so i'm just gonna say whatever i want in the introduction of what this is we don't have a script for this <laughs> it's just him asking a general question considering me and Ulrich experts which i have a problem with but it's fine but it's just like so that we could give general advice to other filmmakers in the indie space is that accurate that feels like it's not the yeah. best way to set this up I think that's right. It's like, it's like a question that he feels that we are like, you know, either experts or like, yeah, like we will have answers that are like legitimate, like good answers that people can learn from, you know? So the question from, from Eric Toms this week is how do you start raising money for your films? So Ulrich, why don't you tell everyone the secret to how you raise millions of dollars for indie films? Well, not millions of dollars, but I'll, I'll, you know, how I raise money for my movies and like starting with the short films, it was crowdfunding and then also whatever family, you know, our friends would, would kick in, but that wasn't much on, especially on the shorts. Shorts are just like wherever you could beg, borrow, and steal. A lot of my own money went into the shorts, you know, which is not, it's a, it's not like I don't recommend that. It's like I recommend it once, maybe twice, you know, like to self-fund your own stuff. But like, I guess it all depends on your means. Like if you just have millions of dollars, then you can self-fund all you want. Like Francis Ford Coppola, self-funding $400 million movie that he's making in Atlanta right now. Good on him. He has $800 million. It's fine. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, you know, I would say that when it comes to feature film financing, like that, I have this, this structure that I used and that it was really, really wonderful. When we talked to Ben Hickernell, who's like five time, you know, uh, indie filmmaker, he does the same process. So basically like you start with like your, your closest connections, like your friends and family, people who you think may or may not be able to, you know, 
People who you think will give you money, don't go with people who you think won't give you money. People who you think will give you money or have money to invest or believe in you on the project and start, you know, asking them to lunch, like, you know, setting up meetings. And then you just circle out from there. And like every time that you meet with anybody, you ask them if they know anyone who you think might, they think might be interested in this, who might sit down and talk with you. And so you basically just start spiraling out from your friends and family and your network until you like just keep on going on this circle outwards, 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 outwards. And the more movies you make and the more people you talk to, the more people you will meet who will be interested in sitting down with you. And so I basically did this on the alternate. And after... I think two years, I raised $15,000 on my own through friends, family, you know, doing this process, which to me is like a hugely large amount of money (laughs) to raise. And then I met my producer, Jeff. And then what happened was I basically went back to all the same people who had said no or not at at this time. And I was like, hey, look, I got this famous, uh, well, not famous, but this really well-known producer who's made all these movies and things you've heard it with, worked with Michael Bay, executive producer of the Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. Like, what do you guys say? And then, you know, I think I got six to seven more meetings from people who had said no once I got Jeff on board. And then like with the first year with Jeff, we raised another $40,000 plus 20 in commitments. So we kind of got up to like 60 in cash and then like 80, like in theory, you know? And so it was like, okay, well, will we ever see that 20? We're like, we think so, but we don't know. And then the next year after that, we basically decided that we had to like, we made a, 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 a proof of concept. We kept doing the process. We didn't really get any farther. And then we're like, well, We'll do crowdfunding. We did crowdfunding. And then during the crowdfunding, that's when we were able to get more investors looped in. And then basically in the last, from when we did the crowdfunding campaign in October to when we shot the movie in December, that's when we raised like, yeah, I don't know, the the next $60,000 of our budget. And then that 20 that we were waiting on did actually come in at the last minute, but we basically thought it wasn't going to come. And then like the week before we shot, it came in. So it was like really, really wonderful that it all kind of worked out that way. But yeah, that was like, that was my process. And I think if I was to make my next movie, I would just do the same process again, you know, and hopefully not have to go to crowdfunding because I feel like there's only so many times you can dip into the crowdfunding pool and have that be successful, you know? But yeah, Liz, what about you? What's your answer to the question? Well, I think I'm, I think yours is very like granular and very specific and people can take a lot away from that. And so just to supplement your answer, I was thinking of just some strategy ideas because what I do is when I say I'm going to make something, I make it and I'm very, very loud about it and I talk about it all the time (laughs) and I use press, publicity, social media, my email newsletter, speaking opportunities, podcasts, to just keep on planting the seed with as many people as possible. Because I don't like to go to lunch with people. And I don't like to... I think of my working day as like very precious time that's devoted to my consulting. I think of my weekend as really precious time that's devoted to my family. I need to loosen up a little bit about that. I need to socialize a little bit more. But it's hard for me to kind of have that kind of like wiggliness, that squishiness of like, let me have an informal meeting with you and let me plant the seed, the Ben Hicker now, Alric Burcell approach. So for me, it's like steamrolling people enough and to show them how serious I am. (laughs) And it seems to attract or magnetize people to a degree. Just the idea that I create momentum, I bring on staff really, really early. I bring on crew really, really early, which I think helps. Just like, you know, when you added Jeff, like I bring my department heads on to like years in advance because I know who I want to work with. 
And the more you have attached, the more you have kind of put together, the more you kind of are showing to people that you're serious and you know what you're doing. I'd say, I'm just trying to think like, we're documenting the making of my third feature on Patreon. And right now I'm about, you know, I put together a deck. I've put together key department heads. We're trying to figure out an investor contract that makes the waterfall a little bit different. And what I'm doing is is actuality. I've not sought anyone out. It's been people that I've been introduced to who mentioned they, they invest in film. And so then I go, okay, now I become a shark, right? By the way, I have a project. Here's the deck. By the way, here are my other films. By the way, can we set a phone call? Like I get a little bit more targeted, but I do let people come to me because I have such a weird neuroticism about the ground game that like, if I did the ground game that you and Ben do, I think I would be a lot more productive. But instead, I kind of just, I just decide I'm going to make the movie and I just figure it out somehow. So that's why I'm just acknowledging that like my answer isn't as pragmatic as you. But I do think that if you decide to make something and you put the wheels in motion, you're going to make it. You might make a different tiered version of it. You might make a scaled down version of it, but you're going to make it. And that kind of, it's the only time in my life I am confident. And that kind of confidence does attract participants. And then I would say, what utility are you providing? Like I'm providing transparency about everything in the making of this movie. And I'm always provide creative collaboration, right? With an investor. So as long as you're not pitching, I need money, I need your money, I need your money to make my movie. But if you're pitching like, I want to work with you, you're the person I want to work with. And I'm open to any thoughts you have. I trust your taste. Like if you really pitch it as a partnership, I think that helps a lot too. Yeah, all all great advice. I, I mean, I'll double down on almost all of that as things I also did while making the movie. Like especially the getting the crew on early, you know, like I, my DT, DP was attached to the project since like drafts two of the script, like, you know, six years before we made the movie, you know, and I feel like that kind of stuff helps. And like being able to put people in, in lookbooks and pitch decks helps too. You know, it just makes you look more professional and that you like got, got your shit together, you know, like my, my, I knew my gaffer was going to be my gaffer, you know, from the same time I knew it was who my DP was going to be. And like, you know, and it ended up being this, the same person. And I mean, maybe sometimes that won't work out. Maybe timing won't work out where like some people have to drop off, but I feel like having the team built is like super helpful for a lot of different reasons. Uh, there was another thing that you said that I did too. Yeah, I can't remember. Well, just talking exactly. about it with confidence, I think. Yeah. Because you did, yeah. I mean, you started the whole podcast, right? To to kind of document the making of the first yeah. feature. So it's like you put skin in the game. And I think that's what people, we get, we get people all the time who reach out to this podcast or reach out to me as a consultant. And they're like, I want to make a movie, Right. But like, because it is such a common, popular inclination, you really have to go a cut above to prove that you are dedicated and committed to doing it. Yeah. The thing that either you didn't say that you told me like way long ago that I actually did. And it's kind of the reason why I was able to make my movie when I did was setting dates. Yeah. And like, you know, I basically didn't want to do that because like, how can I set dates when I don't have any money or I don't have enough money? And then I did that. I was like, I'm going to do it in the fall of 2019. And then I set dates for the the crowdfunding and boom, <laughs> we did it. We made the movie and somehow the money came. And I, I think Ben talked about that too. Like sometimes 
you know, you don't have the money like way in advance and it just kind of comes all at the end when it needs to. And it's like, you know, I feel like I don't know why that's a common thing, but like, I guess that's just how it works out. <laughs> well, it's the same in casting too, right? And locations that say we've talked about this too, like the serendipity of the last minute drop of a cast member or location and the last minute fill in that's better, that somehow is yeah. better than the original option. For what it's worth, I wanted to say out loud that our dates are February 19th to March. Oh, shit. Well, we'll just say February 19th, but it's February 19th. We're 27 wow. days shoot. So I wanted to say it out loud because it does help me too, right? That's it's awesome. real. It's real. We're making movies and they're real. You set dates. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're making a movie. Um, going back to the outline. Yeah. <laughs> if any of you have a question, comment, or suggestion for you're the expert, for the game, for life, you can email us at podcast at com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers and filmmakers through the programs they offer. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. We want to thank Tom Harp for coming on the show. Thanks to Samantha Downey from Rogers and Cowan PMK for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Freimuth, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for for his awesomeness. Thanks to all of you for listening. Talk to you next week. Sean's on a call right now, but somehow he doesn't mind when Colin is like, Dad, 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 every three seconds. Yeah, I, I need that superpower. I gotta, I gotta yeah. figure out how he has that. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.